This is Lecture 3 on the Book of Kings by Dr. Robert Bunoy of Biblical Theological Seminary. Lecture number 3. We were looking at verses 5 to 12 in chapter 2 of 1 Kings. David instructs Solomon to deal with these three individuals, Joab, Barzillai, and Shimei. We discuss Joab. The second one is Barzillai. We read in verse 7, But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead, and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. When David had to flee from Jerusalem, he received assistance from Barzillai. You will find that in Second Samuel chapter 17, verses 27 to 29, where you read the following. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, son of Amiel, from Lodavar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogalim, brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep, and cheese from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. For they said, These people have become hungry and are tired and thirsty in the desert. Later, when David was about to return to Jerusalem, Barzillai met him and sent him on his way. In Second Samuel chapter 19, verse 31, you read of that where it says, Barzillai the Gileadite came down from Rogalim to cross the Jordan with the king to send him on his way from there. Now Barzillai was a very old man, 80 years of age. He had provided for the king during his stay in Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said, Cross over with me and stay in Jerusalem, and I will provide for you. But Barzillai said he didn't want to do that. In any case, he was a great encouragement to David, and he acted loyally to David at a time when it seemed that Absalom would be victorious. In other words, Barzillai did this at great risk to himself. If you're going to get yourself involved in taking sides in a revolution, you want to be pretty sure, if you're interested in your own self-preservation, that you're on the right side. But at great risk, Barzillai came to help David, even through the fear at that point that David was on the run. David has not forgotten that, and his loyalty here is rewarded, and he wants the family of Barzillai to be rewarded for his faithfulness. So he tells Solomon to show kindness to these people and to have them eat at his own table. Shimei is the third individual. In verse 8 it says the following, And remember... You have with you Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahanaim. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now do not consider him innocent. You are a man of great wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood." And that was the advice that David gave Solomon concerning Shimei. When David fled from Absalom, he was met by Shimei in the Mount of Olives. That's in Second Samuel chapter 16, verses 5 to 14. Shimei was a distant relative of Saul. And you read in verse 5 of Second Samuel 16, and I quote here, 
As King David approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out there to meet him. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel! The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What do you and I have in common, sons of Zeruiah? If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who can ask, Why do you do this? Then David said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, who is of my own flesh, is trying to take my life. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to do so. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I have seen today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. And that's the episode between Shimei and David. Now, Second Samuel chapter 19, verses 18 to 23, we have another encounter with Shimei. When David returns to Jerusalem, we read, Shimei crossed the Jordan and fell prostrate before the king and said, May my lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind, for I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first of the whole house of Joseph to come down and meet my lord the king. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zeruiah? This day you have become my adversaries. Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Do I not know that today I am king over all Israel? So the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king promised him with an oath. Now David at first refused to let his men take any action against Shimei. But I think at the point where David gives his instruction to Solomon, it had become clear in the meantime that Shimei's curse was not from the Lord. And David then instructs Solomon to take action against him. I think the basis for that is rooted back in Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. In that verse we read the following, Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 10, we're in the context of the controversy between Ahab and Naboth, where Ahab wanted Naboth vineyard, and Jezebel arranges for this phony trial to be held to accuse Naboth. Notice verse 10 of that chapter. She wrote these letters, and it says in the letters, and we quote here, See two scoundrels opposite him, and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. In other words, cursing God and the king was something for which someone would pay with his life. Shimei cursed the king. He cursed David. And I think this should not be viewed as personal revenge of David on Shimei. 
It's just because Shimei cursed him that it offended him. I think it's part of David's political testament, given to ensure confirmation of Solomon's kingship, and something that was done to protect the office that Solomon would assume on the basis of the law of God. Now, that does seem to create somewhat of a tension between what he said then and what he tells Solomon later. But it seems to me that perhaps the explanation for that is this. It's clear by this time that the cursing was not a curse from the Lord. It was from Shimei himself. Now, David, in one sense, was a man of blood. In that first passage, David says in Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 10, If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, then who can ask, why did he do this? See, it seems to me that at that point David isn't at all certain. Maybe the curse is valid. Maybe the Lord is telling Shimei to curse him. And it becomes obvious later that that curse was not of the Lord. It was out of Shimei's own heart. It wasn't something that the Lord was speaking through Shimei. All right, so those instructions were given with perspective to those three individuals. That's in 1 Kings chapter 2 in verses 13-46, and that's number 2 of your outline. If you look at the outline under capital A1, that's Solomon's succession to the throne, and that's in chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 12. That's what we just looked at, and that's number 2, as I said, of the outline, Solomon's consolidated rule. And that's chapter 2, verses 13 to 46. So that summarizes the initial content of 1 Kings. We have two subsections in that passage from verses 13 to 46. The first one is verses 13 to 35. In verses 13 to 35, Solomon takes action against Adonijah and his two supporters, Abiathar and Joab. In the context for that is Adonijah's request to have Abishag for his wife. Abishag, you recall, was the woman who had been secured to keep David warm in his old age. And you read this in verses 13 to 35 of chapter 2, that Adonijah, through Bathsheba, requests of Solomon that he may take Abishag as his wife. You see in verse 17 where he says, So please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as my wife. Very well, Bathsheba replied, I will speak to the king. She goes to Solomon and says she has a request. And she says in verse 21, Let Abishag, the Shunammite, be given in marriage to your brother Adonijah. Notice Solomon's response. King Solomon answered his mother, Why don't you request Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? You might as well request a kingdom for him. After all, he is my older brother. Yes, for him and for Abiathar the priest and Joab son of Zeruiah. I think Solomon recognized that that request given through Bathsheba was another attempt by Adonijah to gain the throne. We have a note here in the NIV study Bible in verse 22 On that phrase, you might as well request the kingdom for him. Solomon immediately understands Adonijah's request as another attempt to gain the throne. The possession of the royal harem, after all, was widely regarded as signifying the rights of succession. Although Abishag was a virgin, she would be regarded by the people as belonging to David's harem. 
So marriage to Abishag would strengthen Adonijah's claim to the throne. So Solomon then takes immediate action. Adonijah is put to death. Abiathar is removed from the priesthood. And Joab is also put to death. Now, that's in this section of verses 13 to 35. Here's a question. How is it that Bathsheba didn't realize the implication of Adonijah's request? Vinoy's response. You would think so, but I don't know. How do you explain that? I don't know. She seems there to be innocent of that. It seems to me that she didn't realize just what the request was all about. She didn't see any real significance to it, so she asked Solomon for Abishag for Adonijah. Solomon, of course, immediately sees the scheme behind it. Another student question. Are you going to comment a little bit on Joab's grabbing the horns of the altar? That signifies a position of refuge. How is it that different from the cities of refuge? Response. I think the principles would be the same, but those cities of refuge, or the horns of the altar, were really only for the people who were innocent of deliberate murder. In other words, there was killing, accidental killing, killing in certain situations for which the death penalty was not warranted, for which there would be refuge. I think the cities of refuge were provided for that, but the altar would have been an alternative to one of those cities. It functioned in the same way. A note here in the NIV Study Bible says the following, The right of asylum was extended to those who accidentally caused someone else's death. And that's in Exodus chapter 21, verse 14. Solomon was justified in denying this right to Joab, not only for his complicity in Adonijah's conspiracy, but for his murder of Abner and Amasa. And that's the NIV study note. All right, the second thing is in chapter 2, verses 36 to the first part of verse 46. And that's where Solomon takes action against Shimei. He had made an agreement with Shimei to remain in Jerusalem. Then one of Shimei's servants left him. He went out to search for him and left Jerusalem, thereby breaking that agreement. For that, then, he's put to death. I'm not going into the details of that, but you notice the conclusion of the chapter, which is verse 46, part B. The kingdom was now firmly established in Solomon's hands. That really concludes this first section. In your outline, that's capital A, introductory material, chapters 1 and 2. The central idea in those two chapters is that the Lord is at work to establish Solomon on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom is now firmly established. He is the one that the Lord had chosen to continue the Davidic dynasty, and he now assumed that position. In chapter 3 is a chapter in Solomon's wisdom. We're going to come back to that later because that subject comes up later. But chapter 3 is where Solomon asks for wisdom, and you have that illustration of the two women with the two children. One is dead, one is alive. Solomon adjudicates that in a very wise way. That's chapter 3, and as I said, I'm not going to comment on that at present. I want to go on to 4, which is capital D in your outline, Solomon's reign characterized. If you glance at chapter 4, you notice it's a chapter with a lot of lists and statistics, 
usually not the kind of thing you find very exciting reading. It begins in verses 2 to 6 with the list of the chief officials of the courts. These were Solomon's chief officials, and you have a whole list there of them. And then that is followed in verses 7 to 19 with the list of the twelve district governors. It seems clear that Solomon set up a national organization with governors over twelve district territories. The purpose of that you read in verse 7. He had twelve district governors over Israel who provided supplies and provisions for the king in the royal household. Each one of these governors had to provide supplies for one month of the year. So here you have 12 governors and 12 districts, and it was the responsibility of one of those districts every month to provide for the maintenance and support of the royal household. Then, when you get down further in the chapter, you find details about the kinds of provisions that are needed to meet the needs of the court. Look at verse 22, and I read here, Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, now that's daily. And then it said, Ten head of stall-fed cattle, twenty of pasture-fed cattle, hundred sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. And then we read in verse 27, The district officers, each in his month, supplied provisions for King Solomon and all who came to the king's table. They saw to it that nothing was lacking. They brought their quotas of barley and straw for the chariot horses and the other horses. And then there's a lot of them that we read about in verse 26, where it says there were 4,000 stalls for the chariot horses and 12,000 horses. Now, you see, that is a lot of material that has to be supplied to the king every single month from each one of these districts. Now, as you look behind the surface of those lists and statistics, I think there are some things we might notice. First, look at the 12 districts whose governors are named. You'll notice that the districts do not directly coincide with the 12 tribes and the tribal areas. If you glance down through that list, you'll see that six of the tribes are mentioned. Notice verse 8 is Ephraim. Verse 16 is Asher. Verse 18 is Benjamin. There are six of them that are mentioned, and then general areas of the districts are indicated. It seems clear that in every case it doesn't correspond directly with tribal boundaries. But the interesting thing is that neither the area nor the name of the tribe of Judah is mentioned. Some interpreters have concluded from this that Solomon's system of taxation, for supplying these provisions to his court, the tribe of Judah was exempted. And, of course, the tribe of Judah was his own tribe. So some have concluded that the tribe of Judah, in this system of taxation, to support the court, Judah received special treatment. This raises the question of favoritism, of course, and the potential for dissension. And some feel that's part of the number of things that later on leads to the division of the kingdom. Now, that's kind of reading between the lines, but neither the tribe is mentioned nor the area of Judah so that may or may not be a legitimate conclusion to draw from that. It's a possibility, but that's the first thing I wanted to point out. The second thing to notice is that the taxation is quite heavy. As we read in verse 7, each district had to provide supplies for the court for a period of a month. And the amount of the supplies were substantial. If you look at verse 22, Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of fine flour, 
A core is about, according to the NIV note, 185 bushels. And there's 30 cores, and that's for a day. Multiply that by another 30 per month. That's an enormous amount of provision. And that's just flour. There's 60 cores of meal, 10 head of cattle. That's a day. So times 30, that'd be 300 cattle for a month. 800 sheep, that's 3,000 sheep for a month. And also, besides supplying the court, they had to provide for his horses. In verse 28, they had to bring quotas of barley and straw for the chariot horses. In verse 26, it says he had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and also 12,000 horses. So they had to provide feed for 12,000 horses. And that's one of the districts that had to do that for one month of the year. And the following year, they had to do it again. It'd go on year after year. Now, it seems that in the times of Solomon, with the kind of prosperity Israel enjoyed, that didn't seem like much of an objection or a lot of stuff. People seemed to be able to handle that and bear it without being too upset by it. But what I think immediately comes to mind is the warning of Samuel back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when the people first came to him and asked for a king. He gave them a warning. And he said, if you have a king like the nations round about you, this is what he's going to do. He's going to take, 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 take. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 11 and following, we read that he is going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your crops. I think 1 Samuel chapter 8 begins to appear not just an imaginary game here. The taxes that Solomon instituted, it seems, gradually came to be experienced as a burden. As increasingly a real burden it became, so when you get to 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 4, you read the people say to Rehoboam, who followed Solomon, Solomon's firstborn, they say, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten it up, lighten the harsh labor and heavy yoke he put on us, and we'll serve you. So you see, by the time of Solomon's death and the succession of Rehoboam, this was felt as a real burden, and the people wanted it lightened. They wanted some relief, and Rehoboam wouldn't really do that. All right, so that's the second thing, this heavy taxation. The third thing is kingship under Solomon, and that begins to appear more and more like the kingship to the surrounding nations. I think initially it wasn't that way. When Saul became king, it seems that he had a very small organization. He acted more like a judge than a king. What court he had was modest. With David, the court becomes more visible and organized. It grows. David built a palace. David had a harem. That proceeds further with Solomon, so that when you get to Solomon, his court and his palace and his harem are equal to the most important rulers of the ancient world. And you can see that by comparing the statistics of 1 Kings chapter 4, what we've been looking at, with those of the time of David. You can go back and look at the list of officials in David's court. It is much smaller than the list that we find in the time of Solomon. You find that in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 15 to 18. So the number of high officials grew significantly in Solomon's court. And the other thing that is significant here is Solomon's development of the army. Even though David is the one who fought all the battles, and Solomon basically was the man of peace as far as actually going out and waging war, well, he really didn't do much of that, that is, wage war. 
it was done mostly in David's time. Solomon built fortifications and maintained alliances, but you read in verse 26 that he had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. Prior to the time of Solomon, the army of Israel never had horses and chariots. That is significant because Israel, in a sense, was an exception in the world of that day. Other nations had chariots and horses for a long time. I think this is also related to how Israel was to be different. If you remember, when Israel fought against a coalition of kings in northern Canaan at the time of the conquest, the Lord told Joshua he would give these armies into Israel's hand. Look at Joshua chapter 11, verse 6, and to what the Lord said then. These kings had chariots and horses. But Joshua chapter 11, verse 6 says, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them over to Israel, slain. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. Now the normal thing would have been to capture the horses and chariots and then use them yourself. That's always been the way military operations work. If you can defeat another army, you get a lot of military weapons and supplies that strengthens your own army. But the Lord told Joshua when they defeated this coalition of kings to hamstring their horses and to burn their chariots, not to take them for themselves. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, where you have the law of the king, Moses says when they come into the land and set up the king eventually, these are the things that the kings shall do. One of the things the king was not to do was listed in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16. The king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. The Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. The king is not to acquire great numbers of horses. Well, David had continued that policy of Joshua in conformity with the law of the king. Look at Second Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. Second Samuel, verse 8, is the catalog of David's conquest. And you read in verse 4, David captured a thousand of his chariots, and that's of Hadar Ezer of Rahab, who's king of Zobah. But when he went to restore control along the Euphrates River, we read, David captured a thousand of his chariots, seven thousand charioteers, and twenty thousand foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. That's all about a hundred. He skipped a hundred. That's not significant compared to the thousand in the city of Solomon. Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 16 says, The king must not acquire great numbers of horses. Great numbers of horses. I'm not sure that a hundred horses was a violation of that. You might say David opened the door, however. It's certainly more than Joshua did, but Joshua, of course, was responding to a specific command. The Lord said to do what Joshua did. In this other context, there doesn't appear to be a specific command. I think what the point is, I think we see a shift when we come to Solomon because he has this large military force. It seems to me the Lord did not want Israel to be like the nations round about them, when it came to military organization and armaments. But with Solomon, all that seems to change. 
The NIV, or New English Version of the Bible, Study Bible, note in comparing 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 26, with 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 26, and 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 14, indicates that Solomon had 1,400 chariots, meaning he maintained stalls for two horses for each chariot, with places for about 1,200 reserve horses. By way of comparison, an Assyrian count of the Battle of Karkar in 853 B.C., about a century after Solomon, speaks of 1,200 chariots from Damascus, 700 chariots from Hamath, and 2,000 chariots from Israel, which is the northern kingdom. That, by the way, would have been in the time of Ahab. And so it seems that Solomon here has begun to follow the pattern of the surrounding nations in building up this military force to at least similar, if not superior, strength. I want to come back to that later, but we're just looking at several things sort of behind the surface of these lists of statistics in chapter 4 of First Kings. I think when we consider all these things together, you get some conflicting signals of what is going on in the time of Solomon. I think primarily the statistics seem to say in this kingdom, peace has come under the rule of Solomon, and what I mean by that is there is abundance. You read in chapter 4, verse 20, The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, they were happy. So their lives aren't threatened by wars or foreign armies. Look at verse 25, where we read, During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, each man under his vine and fig tree. So you get this idea of the kingdom at peace. They're happy. They're well-fed. They're satisfied. They live in safety, and Solomon is a ruler with very great wisdom and insight and breadth of understanding. You read that in chapter 4, verse 29, where it says, God gave Solomon wisdom, very great insight, breadth of understanding, as measurable as the sand on the seashore. His wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east. So that in some respects you see God's blessing. It's visible, and you have this kingdom of peace under the rule of Solomon. But as I said, there's conflicting signals. At the same time, these statistics raise more disturbing questions. It seems that the kingship of Solomon is beginning to be conformed to the pattern of the kingship of the nations round about. Taxes are introduced that we find later become a heavy yoke and a burden for the people. I think what you find, and that's why I'm spending so much time on this, I think you see there are cracks in this kingdom right from the get-go. Taxation becomes a heavy burden. There's the favoritism shown to Judah. And if that's a proper understanding, that's something that can also easily lead to dissension and to dissatisfaction on the part of the northern tribes. The introduction of horses and chariots, to the extent that you find it, seems ominous, you might say. So these are disturbing elements that, as you read the history further, I think, do show themselves really to be fatal ultimately to the continuation of this peaceable kingdom, or this kingdom of peace, and ultimately contribute to the downfall of Israel and Judah. I think that demonstrates that even though you have a chapter here of statistics that might be viewed as mundane information with little spiritual significance, 
If you really look into it a little deeper, there's a great deal of spiritual significance in these sort of mundane figures of lists of names and how many bushels of this and how many cores of that. I think life is undivided. We don't live in two realms that have nothing to do with each other, a spiritual realm and a non-spiritual realm. This chapter deals mainly with mundane matters, you might say, but they do have spiritual significance, as we have noted. I think that is true in our lives as well. We can involve ourselves with things you may say have no spiritual significance, but that's a deception. Everything we do either advances or hinders our relationship with the Lord. And that is certainly true of Solomon in this situation. Well, I see I'm overdrawn on time, so let me stop here. We've not finished this section, so I'll make a few more comments next time we meet. That ends lecture number three on Kings by Dr. Robert Vinoy of Biblical Theological Seminary.